Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day, which is the Lord's day. We thank you that we can come before you in worship and praise. Even though we are separated in individual homes, we know that you were present with us. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and Christ alone. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the truth that we need to know this day. We pray that you would be with those, Father, who need your healing hand upon their body. We ask also that you would protect us from this virus. We pray that you would use us for your glory and honor during this crisis in our nation. We pray that we would have opportunities to share the gospel with those that we come in contact with. Thank you, Father, that you are a God that controls all things. And we thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ and Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you have read Mark chapter 13. This morning as we look at this particular passage, we will only do an introduction into this passage. Scripture, we know, teaches that only God knows the future. Only God knows when Jesus Christ will gather his elect from all nations. But Scripture also reveals to us certain truths about the future. So therefore, we need to know these truths so that we might be ready for his return. And we see in this particular chapter that Jesus teaches his disciples about the future. After Jesus' triumphant entry... In chapter 11, we see that there were numerous things that he accomplished there at the temple. Much transpired between him and his disciples and the religious leaders. And it was grievous that the house of God had become a den of thieves. God had told Israel that he would dwell with them in the temple and show his mercy as long as they were faithful and obeyed his word. But now Ichabod had been written over the doors of the temple, for they had been unfaithful, even rejecting the Son of God as he had walked there on the earth for three years. Now though the temple was an impressive building, it had lost its glory. God was no longer there. His glory was not being revealed. And therefore its days were numbered. As they left the temple on that Tuesday afternoon, one of the disciples mentioned about the majesty of the building. And Jesus took that opportunity to reply to what the disciple had said. But we see that the disciples must have been surprised by what Jesus said because they did not respond to him immediately. We see that he did not, they did not speak to him about this issue until they were on the Mount of Olives sitting across from the temple. Now we see that Jesus wants them to go beyond the facade of the temple and see the reality. He wanted them to see the true spiritual condition of Israel as well as what God was about to do in just a few decades. And due to Israel's unfaithfulness, the coming judgment was for Jerusalem, for the temple, and for the people. So Jesus is about to teach them about this coming judgment. And it appears that as the disciples sit with him there on the Mount of Olives, we are told in verse 
verse 30, or I'm sorry, verse 3, that four of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, asked him this question privately. Now, suppose that he was teaching them, all of the disciples, even though they asked him privately this particular question there in verse 3, as it says. So Jesus begins to answer their question about the future. Now, of course, this isn't the first time that the future is spoken of in Scripture. We know that throughout the Old Testament, it is filled with prophecy, prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and what he was going to come and do in bringing the new covenant. And many Old Testament books mention the future, not only about the coming of the Messiah, about coming of judgment upon the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, as well as the coming judgment that Jesus also is talking about here in Mark chapter 13. Now we have to understand that this prophecy was given so that people would know what God was going to do if people did not repent of their sins. So it was to inform Christians Now, some of you remember about six years ago when I preached through Revelation that I also mentioned this particular passage, Mark chapter 13. And what Jesus says in this passage is primarily for the disciples at that particular time. He's seeking to prepare them for what is about to come in just a few decades. And we know that he is given this information so that they will be ready for what's going to take place. A very important verse in this particular chapter is verse 30. Look at what it says there in Mark chapter 13, verse 30. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It's very important that we understand that Jesus is speaking to that particular generation. And that these things that are spoken of here in Mark chapter 13 would happen during the lifetime of that generation. We know that God holds the future. Our future is secret to us, but not to God. We know that He controls the future. This coronavirus has made this very clear to us. We have no control over what takes place. God is the one that controls all things, and that gives us great comfort in knowing that. We know that He has a plan even for this crisis in our particular nation at this particular time. But we know that we must be ready for His return at any moment. We know that we must be ready to face death at any moment. And we see that Jesus is teaching these disciples about the future and the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem and the Jews. Now this is one great, there is one great certainty about the future. And that is that we must be ready. We must be prepared for that day. And that Jesus will come and he will call his people to his heavenly home. Now, Scripture reveals that God generally acts according to His established events. And this helps us to be humble in making future plans, knowing that we make our plans, but God guides our steps. God's laws of nature is what makes it possible 
for ordinary people like us to believe that what goes up will come down, that the sun will come up tomorrow, and that the seasons will fall in line as scheduled. God's Word teaches us a certain course of action will be followed by certain consequences. What you sow, you will reap. God's ordinary way of action is that there is stability in this world. Without stability, it would be impossible for us to understand and know what tomorrow holds. But yet God has given us absolutes. Two plus two equals four. The number pi is a mathematical constant. The law of gravity is in operation, and light continues to travel at the same speed and never will change. An absolute truth is that tomorrow King Jesus will still be Lord of Lords. Now, many events happened after Jesus' triumphant entry. We know that as he came into the temple, his first act was that he cleansed the temple. And then he tells about the fig tree, the withered fig tree, and he gives us a lesson on what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And then the parable of the wicked vineyard. And then the most important passage that he dealt with was Psalms 110. And he pointed to the religious leaders and told them that he was the Messiah, that he was the Lord who would rule over all. But the religious leaders in their ignorance, rejected the teachings of our Lord, even though it was very evident that He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Now these directly connect with one another in teaching us about the future judgment that Jesus is speaking of here in this passage, that they would not be a connection until, they would not connect it until after the ascension of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit would teach them all things that they would need to know, then they would understand clearly what Jesus is teaching them here on the Mount of Olives. Now, I hope you see that Mark 13 was prophetic. Theologically, it's called eschatology, which is last things. Now, we have to understand that eschatology is that study of the last things. Now it's sad to say that last things or eschatology has become big business as well as a big mess among evangelicals. There have been literally thousands of books that have been written and sold about last things. It's a very popular subject. Matter of fact, as we were coming to church this morning, I turned on the radio and there was a particular preacher that was preaching about last things and about the rapture and judgment. And you can turn on your radio just about any Sunday and you will hear somebody referring to eschatology, last things. And that's very important that we have a framework for understanding eschatology as well as knowing the purpose of all prophecy given. It isn't surprising to us that God has a purpose for prophecy. And to understand this chapter, we must understand the foundation of it. 
Why did Jesus give the disciples a lesson on future events? That is what we must understand. And chapter 13 is the longest discourse that Jesus gives. And it's called the Olivet Discourse. It parallels with Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21. And it's one of the most difficult chapters in the Gospels to understand. Now, I'm not going to take time to read what all the different scholars say as far as this being a difficult chapter to understand. If you want to, you can look up and read about what the scholars have to say. Now, I hope you realize that some passages are easier to understand than other passages. Some are very difficult. But don't misunderstand me. There is what the theologians call perspicuity of Scripture. It's clarity. And aided by the Holy Spirit, a Christian can end up with more theology than the Pope. Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable in 2 Timothy 3.16. But we also know that all Scripture is not equally important. Some passages are more important than other passages, and we need to understand that when we come to eschatology. I'm not saying that eschatology is not important, but I'm saying there are other passages that are even more important than eschatology. There's a reason why eschatology is the last chapter of our confession. But it's interesting that there's preachers that spend more time speaking about eschatology, last things, than they do speaking about more important doctrines. It's sad that some can take out their charts and they can give you all kinds of details about the millennium, dividing it up in perfect session sections, but cannot explain to you the importance of Christ's substitutionary atonement. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 states that some things are harder to understand. Now Peter is talking about what Paul has written in his epistles, that he was saying he was having a difficult time understanding some of the things that Paul had dealt with. Now this is why we must cry out to God and to the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to give us eyes to see the truth. We must be like the Bereans there in Acts chapter 17 and search the scriptures to make sure what we are taught is true. Now another truth that we must realize is that scripture was recorded for those who heard it first, for those also who would hear it later. We know that Moses wrote the events that had taken place from the very beginning all the way up to the deliverance from Egypt. He recorded those things. He recorded those things for the generations to come. But also we see that he spoke to the people of that day and he had a message for them. But yet that was recorded later for the next generation. Likewise, in the New Testament... We have the Gospels. The Gospels, first of all, were recorded as far as oral Gospels. And then later they were written down. To think that Jesus says these things in Mark chapter 13 for people 2,000 years later and had nothing to say to the disciples at that time would be simply foolish. It's to misunderstand the purpose of Scripture and its original intent and its original audience. The words that Jesus spoke to his disciples were given so that they might grasp the truth. They had asked him a question. 
And he is answering their question. And they are to apply this truth to their life. But also they are to teach others the truth that they have received. They are to pass this truth down to the next generation. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. If we want to find the one true meaning of the text, we must follow the grammatical historical method. The hermeneutical approach investigates the original culture setting of the text and focuses on grammar and syntax in order to understand what the author of the text meant. Then he wrote to his original audience, Only this message can give us the original meaning of the biblical text. Otherwise, we end up with a dangerous subjectism that denies truth itself. If we ignore the intent of the author, the Bible can mean whatever we want it to mean. Divisions in the church, cults, radical subjectivism, and our own scripture twisting all attest to this. So as Jesus taught his disciples, they understood that this discourse, Mark chapter 13, was answering their question about the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem. And this discourse was very relevant to them. Now we will see later that the Christians took Jesus' words very seriously. When the opportunity arose, they left Jerusalem. They fled to the mountains so that their lives would be spared. Now, next we come to what Mark says here in chapter 13. And we need to realize that these 37 verses, these first 37 verses, are pure instruction to the disciples. But not everyone, everything in this chapter, is precisely structured in a form, neat outline, as we might want it to be. So therefore, we need to be very leery of anyone who would say that it's very easy to understand this chapter, and it's structured in a very neat outline. We come to this passage, and we must pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding of these verses so that we might see and understand the truth. We must never come to study Scripture thinking that all of Scripture is easy to understand. For that is when we end up undermining God and what God would have to say and exalting ourselves with pride. This is the attitude that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had. They thought to understand Scripture that man needed to come to them, that they were the only ones that could teach them Scripture much like the Roman Catholic Church throughout the age. They thought that only their priest should have a Bible and that only their priest could teach the people the truth that they needed to know. Now this is one of the reasons they looked on Jesus and thought that Jesus was someone who should be excluded. I mean, they thought to themselves, this is a common man, he's a carpenter. How in the world can he understand the scriptures? He hasn't been taught like us. Therefore, you should avoid him. That is what the religious leaders of his day thought. Now, as we come to Mark 13, 
we will be able to understand some of it. Some of it we won't be able to completely understand. So therefore, we need to understand that His Word must be driven in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And we must realize that few scholars agree on what is spoken of here in this particular chapter. There are some good, solid men who do not agree with one another. They agree on everything else, but when you come to last things, they do not agree with each other. Now, I've already stated, Jesus is answering the disciples and their question. They've asked three questions, two questions that are mentioned here in Mark and another question that is mentioned in Matthew. Now, we have to understand that the majority of this particular event has to do with the temple, Jerusalem, and judgment coming upon the Jews and how God protects his elect and his coming to save them. Now, this might sound simple, but the problem is when and how will these things happen? Here is an example in verses 14 through 19. Turn with me to that passage. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand where it ought not, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, or either to take anything out of the house, and let him who is in the field go back to get his garments, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those in nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter." For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not happened from the beginning of creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Now most evangelicals would say that this happened in the last three and a half years of earth before Christ's return. I mean, all you have to do is read Hal Lindsey, and he's got it all figured out, right? Or wrong. We have to understand that chapter 13 is not speaking of the end of the age. It has nothing to do with the end of the age. It is speaking to the disciples about the judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem and the Jews. Look at verses 20 through 23. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, Those who choose, he shortened the days. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I told you all these things. Now, Jesus is speaking, as I've mentioned before, to the disciples and telling them what to expect in the near future. He's answering their question. And these words spoke to the disciples. And the disciples, as we will see later, acted upon this 
And thousands of Christians were saved when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed because they had fled from Jerusalem. Some scholars say that there was over 100,000 Jews that died as a result of staying there in Jerusalem, but none, no Christians. Now what we see here is that we must examine the scriptures and as well as historical literature so that we might understand how to rightly interpret this passage. Now, Jesus speaks to them about the things that are going to happen in that generation. Now, as we examine Scripture, and as we also look at the historical literature, we can learn much. It's sad that when I went to seminary, I only knew of one view before I heard the other views as far as the last things in this particular chapter. And most of the men that were raised in the day and in the 70s when they were being taught, they had been taught how Lindsay's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and I at that particular time, as well as many others, were convinced that we were living in the last days and Jesus was going to come back any day. Then, then Hal Lindsey also wrote, there's a new world coming. And then Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. He has written over 40 books and he continues to write books about the last days. And I suppose that he's probably even using this crisis at this time to say that Jesus is about to come. Listen to what Cranfield, a scholar, says as far as the importance of understanding this passage. Do these verses refer to eschatological or ordinary historical event? Or are the historical and eschatological mingled together? It seems then that neither of the exclusive historical nor the exclusive eschatological interpretation is satisfactory. Therefore, we must allow for double reference for the mingling of the historical and the eschatological. William Hendrickson says, There is indeed a connection between the judgment to execute on the Jewish nation and the final judgment on the day of consummation of all things. The first was a type of a foreshadowing of the second. Now what we have to see is that prophecy gives us a picture of what is to come. We have to understand that the destruction of the temple, the tribulation that came upon the Jews, all of this foreshadows Jesus' second coming. But keep in mind Hendrickson's words. All this foreshadows what is to come at the end of the age. So this happens throughout the Bible. Many things that occurred in the Old Testament were foreshadowing of what would happen later. The first event becomes a pattern for the second event, future events. And we see that both Daniel and Isaiah give us many predictions about the judgment of Israel. And those things came about. But these things also were a type, they were a foreshadowing of what God would do later at the end of the age. Another example is the redemption of Israel from Egypt. This was a type of all God's people and redemptive activity, which of course pointed to Christ, that He would be our Redeemer. 
Luke chapter 4. When Jesus walked into the synagogue, remember what he read. He read Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captive and recover a sight to the blind and set the liberty of those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now notice, Jesus did not quote Isaiah 61 to b and the day of vengeance of our Lord. In not quoting it, we see that he reveals that there was a gap between his ministry on earth and the judgment that would follow. The year of vengeance would not come until later. The first destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then at the end of the age there would be the final judgment. One foreshadowing the other. So what I'm saying is that in many of these events which have already happened, there will be an ultimate consummation in the end. The first event brings about the second. Now this brings me to my final point today. The purpose of Mark 13. What is it? Well, let me point out that there is danger when studying Scripture when we do eisegesis instead of exegesis. Eisegesis is a process of interpreting in a way that introduces one's presuppositions and bias. Exegesis seeks to draw out the meaning of the particular passage. Alan Sibbs said, Do not try to satisfy an unhealthy curiosity. It is a serious misuse of Scripture to try to make it disclose more than God has purposed to reveal. And I believe that's what many have done with this particular chapter. They have tried to make it say more than what God purposed to reveal. So it's important that we heed Jesus' word in verse 5. Take heed that no one deceives you. Now why does Jesus say this? Because he knows that there will be those who come and seek to deceive you about what Scripture says. And he even states that many come in his name to deceive others. And many did come after Jesus. Many claimed to be the Messiah. Many led great armies against Rome. And we will see in future sermons that there were those between Jesus' ascension and the destruction of the temple that did exactly this. Now from this, we see that Jesus warned the disciple that there will be persecution and suffering. And they will have to endure much of this, so therefore they must not be surprised when it comes their way. But remember, this foreshadows persecution for Christians throughout history. Second, we are to be witnesses. His exhortation to us is that the gospel would be preached to all people groups. Verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now we have to understand that we are called to go ye therefore into all nations and preach the gospel. This is the main task of the church. This was the main task of the disciples of that particular day. That we are to be light in darkness. So Jesus was teaching them 
that when the temple is destroyed, it would be the beginning of a new age. Jerusalem would no longer be the center of God's covenant promises, but it would be sent out. We see that Sinclair Ferguson says, Jerusalem could no longer keep covenant mercy of God within its walls. If it did not recognize Christ and proclaim Him to the nations, it gives purpose its given purpose would be brought to an end. It would be destroyed. Instead, these ordinary men would take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And this is exactly what happened. And Paul tells us that men have become the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. They became His temple. And they show forth the glory of God among the nations. Read 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. Scripture also clearly teaches us that Jesus will return in the future. Now, no one knows when he may come. There are those who seek to tell us that Jesus is coming. He's coming soon, just as I mentioned this morning. This particular preacher that I listened to made it sound as if he's coming in just a few years. And as these particular people preach and seek to teach... You may be hearing one one day and he's trying to tell you that Jesus can't come until this happens or this happens. And then all of a sudden there's this sound and it's a trumpet and Jesus is there to gather his people. And the person says, wait a minute, Jesus can't come because it hasn't happened. And you point to Jesus and say, well, he's here. What are you going to do? The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? You may die before he returns. Are you ready for death? Are you ready to meet Jesus in death or the second coming? That is the question that we must answer. Our obligation is to share the gospel, warn others of the coming judgment, pray for God to open eyes and ears and change hearts, Are you praying for such a thing to take place even in this time of crisis? How many have you visited and pressed a sermon upon them or given them a sermon to listen to? How many sermons have you handed out to people that you know who are unconverted? How many people have you encouraged to come to church and hear a sermon? What are you doing to bring others to Christ before he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that is found in this particular passage, and we pray that your Spirit would drive this truth into our hearts so that we might be obedient to you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, and for his sake. Amen.